So we're, we're picking up in our, in our story, as most of you have probably figured out by now, you're, you're thinking to yourself, maybe you haven't caught on, we're actually going through the entire Old Testament. Okay, it's just like, I know, you didn't, you said, some of you this is a surprise. But we're, we're getting, and the reason we are is because in his word, he, he set a pattern out. This is not like it's old and outdated, but he sent a pattern to show what it was going to be like when you get to where you're at today and you have a relationship with him. That th- this is, these are all instructive to us. It's just not throwaway stories that you learned in a Sunday school at some point or some story that you heard somewhere, not really sure what it means for your life. But these all have meaning for your life. And so that we're getting that meaning. And if you've been here for a number of weeks, you've seen how we connect it to the gospel, how we connect it to Jesus himself. So where we left off is that there was this obstacle between the children of Israel. They have been delivered. God used Moses, delivered them, took them out of their Egyptian oppression. Uh, The exiles went through 40 years in the desert, a lot of lessons learned there. Uh, But finally, they're going to go into the land of milk and honey. Yay, milk and honey. Going to the promised land. And God does this miraculous thing, and he dams up the, the Jordan so that the water doesn't flow, walks on dry land just like he did with the Red Sea uh, 40 years earlier. Uh, they're going into the land of promise. Joshua is leading them, but there's an obstacle between them and their destiny. God had destined them to get to this other side, this Canaanite land, this cursed people. And they, he said, I've given you this land. It's yours. Your, your name's on the title. You, you got the deed to it, you just got to go take it. And I'm going to let you take it as long as you follow my rules. But standing between them and the land and the promise was the city called Jericho. If you remember if you were here last week and, and God said, this is, he gave him a war plan and the war plan just sounds silly on paper, but it worked. You're going you're gonna to march to my marching orders, and your marching is going to include just marching and some blowing some trumpets, and then at the end of shout, and then he took all the wall, came down, and they just took in and took the city. Just like that, just took the city. So now the obstacle has gone between them and their destiny, but this is kind of like, you ever been to Disney, and you get in, you know, one of their lines, and you look at it, and, and then you finally are going to get in to the ride like under the shelter and out of the hot sun and you think man I have arrived but once you turn the corner in the inside you realize that the line on the inside as long as the one on the outside and that's what Israel's facing like they're they're in the they're in there they've made it to the destined land but they're not done yet there's going to have to be some obeying There's going to have to be some warring, some battle to do. And God is going to deliver them, and this is going to take some time. And and so there's this land, and God gives them some things. He says, you're going to go take this land, the Ai, the Amorites, and you're going to take the land. When you do take the land, you know, before you take the land, God has remembered something they did that they weren't supposed to do. Actually, it was just one guy, maybe his family, When they went to Jericho, God told them, hey, listen, don't touch any of the devoted items. Don't touch anything. Only thing that you can take is the gold and the silver, and that belongs to me. You're going to take that and bring it to my sanctuary, holy unto me. It's not yours. But unbeknownst to 
the children of Israel and the 12 tribes. There was one particular tribe with a family in it, and, and uh, they didn't follow the rules. And, and they got tempted, and they saw it, something that they liked, some shiny silver and a gold bar and, and some silk from Babylonia. And they said, you know what? No one's going to miss it. No one's going to know. And their devotion to God, they're not really believing that he is. Even though they've seen his power, they're not really buying into it. Because if they were, um, they wouldn't have done what they did. And so this guy, Achan, leading in as the father of the family, uh, he, 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 he takes some stuff and he buries it in his tent under the ground. Um, and God noticed. So they went into Ai to fight the Amorites. And when they went in there, God is looking at children of Israel and he says, you, if you guys want to fight, go ahead, but um, I'm not going with you. He doesn't tell them he's not going with them. He lets them go in and they sent a couple spies in and they spied out the land. And the spies came back and they said, you know what? Nothing. This is a nothing. There's just a few people there. They're not that strong. They underestimated the number of fighters and the quality of the security system. And so Joshua, in his innocence, got up and he took just 3,000 of the troops and they marched on AI. And you know what happened? It's a, you know, in South, we'd call that, they got a good old butt whooping. They did. They got whooped. They, they got totally annihilated. 36 people died. 36 men died, or 33, I don't remember. The, yeah, I think it's 36. 36. We underestimate often, we underestimate God's strength. We do. That's what happened here. They, and they also overestimate their own power. We often do that. We overestimate our own ability and power. And we underestimate the need, our dependence on God. And those are lethal in all this way. And that's instructive for where we're going today. So they got hurt. And, and so Joshua thinking, God, what up? You, you took me all this way. We crossed the Jordan. You said you'd give us the land. And now you've fallen down on your promise. We didn't get the land. We got whooped. Said, uh, and so Joshua says this in Joshua 7, 6 through 7. Said, then Joshua tore his clothes in mourning. He fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, before God's presence, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, listen to these words. This is his cry. And you, you would get it if you're Joshua. Alas, sovereign Lord. He's acknowledging he's sovereign. He's in charge. God, you're in charge. Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan, why did we even bother to go to battle? Pretty serious. Now, God had a response to this. He's not moved by this prayer. He's not moved at all by it. You're crying out. You ever done that? Crying out to God over the God to fix something that you're refusing to fix on your end? Tell me you know what that feels like. They had resisted God. Now, part of Joshua's big fear here is they went into AI, uh, and now that they got whooped, all the other nations know they got beat. And you know what that's going to do to the other nations? 
It's going to make them pretty confident. And so they're all going to get together, all the kings of all these nations, and they're going to genocide to annihilate Israel, naturally. And they knew that. And so now they are petrified of being destroyed, that their enemy is emboldened. And then Joshua goes on to God and the rest of his prayer. I don't have it up here. He just says, and God, and your glory is at stake here. What does this say about you, that you let this happen to you? Here's how God answered Joshua. No, he's face down. He's prostrate. And the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. The emphasis is on the my. Whose covenant? God's. Which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things, the gold and the silver that belong to God, the spoil that belonged to no one to be destroyed and burned. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. They have taken the sacredness and they've mixed it with the secular. They have taken things that belong to God and moved them over into the world. And God was mad. Be like this. It'd be like a child failing a test. Failing a test because they didn't follow the teachers or the professor's instructions. And getting an F on it and whining and complaining to the professor. Like, well, how could you possibly give me an F on this? And they said, well, because you didn't follow my instructions. It was very simple. I told you, like, five is most likely absolutely, and one is least likely, and you did the opposite. You weren't listening. God is not moved by his pleas, disgusted by their sin. And so at this time, God tells him, go consecrate yourself. Make it right. Separate yourself unto God. Make yourself right. And so Joshua, shocked by all this, he calls the tribes together. We're going to get the 12 tribes, and we're going to go tribe by tribe. And we're going to find out who the culprit is or who they are. And we are going to make this right. And he gets the first group up, the first tribe, starting in order. And Achan, who is in tribe number four, the tribe of Judah, he's just watching this. He's not confessing. You know he's got sweat coming down his face. You ever do that where you're confronted and, you know, someone, someone in here has did it. Who did it? Uh, and he's just sitting there, gosh, I hope I don't get caught. He sees the whole searching of the camp, tribe one, tribe two, the search, the interrogation, tribe three, the search and the interrogation. By the time they get to him and his family, he knows that he is dead on arrival. And so because he got caught, he confesses. He says, yeah, I looked at it and I took some silk from fine silk. Garf, Babylonian silk, and I saw some silver there, and I saw some gold, and I, yeah, I took it, and they probably asked him, where'd you put it? I buried it. It's in the dirt underneath my tent, and so they had to make it right, and at that time, it's a pretty serious deal to violate God when he has shown his power, and so they had to destroy Achan and his family. I know that sounds harsh. By the way, in the scripture, I note that he, they did not destroy his wife. She was saved. And so you wonder if she was totally innocent and God spared her. Because we know in the scriptures that you don't, it's very clear in Deuteronomy and the law that you don't blame a sibling or a relation because of the sin of somebody else. And so 
Achan is destroyed. He's gone. They've made it right. By the way, there's a whole list of things that defeat Christians, ways that we take the sacredness of God and we mix it with the secular. We oftentimes have turned worship into a show. We come into our assemblies and we breathe things in that ought not be present in there and it grieves God. We carry with us in this temple that God has given us selfish ambition, rage, uncontrolled, lying lips, impurity, envy, discord, drunkenness, pride, things that say that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just not enough for us. We need more, we need something better and we take the spoil. Now God gave Israel strategy to take AI back. This is really important. They consecrated themselves and what they had done is they had done things to resist the devil so that he would flee. Exactly. So they resisted and he fleed. And so they went to God this time and God gave them the fighting plan. And it was a brilliant plan. God said this time instead of 3,000 soldiers, you underestimated the power, you're going to send 30,000. And you're going to flank them, you're going to come in from the back, and you're going to come in the front. And he gave them a whole war strategy like a brilliant general laying out the plan. And then the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 8.1, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. We get our marching orders from God. We get our plans from him. When we walk in God's will, we enjoy his pleasure and his victory in our life. God emptied the city and the secret, he gives some secrets here as he goes through this story of things. What is it that makes you victorious? What are the things that, that keep you in God where, and I'm not saying out with God in the sense, you're not, you're not gonna lose your relationship with him. That's secure. If you're his, that's secure. But there are times that he says we can sear a conscience and we can quench a spirit. There are times in your life when you know you're walking in defeat. You don't know why we're under this cloud of, of, of chaos and we can't figure out why. And a lot of it's because we've gone into the land and done things that God has told us not to do and we're experiencing the consequences of that. And then one of the things that Joshua did that, that made him victorious is that he had a devotion to something, to a several things, but he was devoted to God's word. He was devoted. God told him and told Moses as well, write this down. Be devoted to his word. It says that brilliantly in, in Joshua 8, 32, 34, and 35. He says, there in the presence of Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. And the stones he's talking about is not tablets. These are probably huge stones. How do we know that? Because archaeologists have found them. Six to eight foot long, huge stones. And inscripted with the words of God, probably out of Deuteronomy. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel. And he says, okay, guess what? Um, we got to go back to class. We, we had a falling out over here in the tribe of Judah, but we got to go back, and so this is how we get reset. 
and consecrate it. We're going to go back to the law and we're going to see what God says and we're going we're to think on that. Before conquering Jericho, going back a little bit, God went with, uh, Josh, with uh, Joshua and he, and, he, and he gave him clarity about what's going to get you to victory is the word of God. He said this in Joshua 1.8. He said, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Keep, keep my words on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Keep it in your mind so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. He said, you do it. You keep it in your mind. You keep it on your lips and be careful to obey what's in there. Then you will, and here's the condition, then you will be prosperous and successful. Then, then you will be prosperous. Is that when? When you're devoted to his word and to doing what it says, meditating it, having it in your heart. Thy words have I hid in my heart that I would not sin against thee, O God. Well, Israel got a little loose. They had this victory in Ai, and they, they, they did the whooping in return. They took over the whole city. Great things. They're on top of the world. But just like us, people, humankind, that when you get on top of the world, you get a little, uh, you know, a little free. Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, we, we had this conquering, and so they went to the next battle, uh, thinking about the next battle, but there was this, there was this tribe near them, uh, the Gibeonites, and, and the Gibeonites were close by, but they had heard about Israel, and they were afraid. They said, listen, we heard about Jericho. We heard about the victory in AI, and um, I, I think it's better if we make friends with them. But they'll never make friends with us because they're going to destroy us. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll make this con. So they pretended like they came from far, far away. And, and they dressed in old raggedy clothes, and they brought food, and they made sure the food was moldy and mildewy and the wine fermented. And they just, they said it's just a, it, it, they came in just like a drama, like a theatric move. And I want you to hear what happened. Um, Israel got taken in by this ruse. But it explains here what I'm about to read to you, why they got taken in by this con. Hear it. And we get taken in the same way. In Joshua 9, 14, and 15, the Israelites sampled their provisions. What the Gibeonites brought, like, oh, that is moldy. You guys have definitely been going a long way. Oh, that smells horrible. The Israelites sampled their provisions, here's the but, but did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't even bother going to God. They, they suspected that these guys weren't legit. But instead of going to God and asking him, who has been free to speak through Joshua and their priests, they, they, they just got loose and said, you know, we're good. We're good. We got it. Look how good we are. Everyone loves us. They're afraid of us. You know, we can do whatever we want. And they did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua, he made a treaty of peace with them and let them live, contrary to what God said. Now, once he gave his word, he can't go back on his word. That's another law. He made a treaty. He can't go back on the treaty. So they got, now they've got this neighbor just a few miles away who can destroy them at any moment, and he's got a treaty with them that he can't harm a hair on their head. They had a loose devotion. That's what they had. We can learn from that. When you have a loose devotion, you get too loose. Things slip by us, and we get conned by the enemy. We rely on our own wisdom, and it leads to our destruction. 
So our pride is at the root of it, and pride comes before what? The fall. That's what happened here. Now, God is going to demonstrate that he is a mighty God. And I want you to hear Joshua's faith. This is incredible, so good. I, I get inspired by this in reading this. They, they go into the next battle, and God's giving them victory, but they want to complete the fight. And Joshua has the audacity to go to God and say, God, stop the sun and the moon. Keep a day out for, for longer because we want to complete the battle. I mean, are you serious, Joshua? Do what? I mean, you're out of your mind that you're that bold, that believing in God's strength, that God could actually stop the earth. Guess what God did? Yeah, let's read it. Joshua 10, 12 and 13. On the, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Dijalan. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. In other words, somebody made a historical note of this. God gave them a 48-hour day instead of a 24-hour day. Now, I know people have debated over this for Those of you that are scientists in here and you've got scientists say, no, you know, wait a minute, the sun doesn't move. It just stops anyway, and it's the moon, the earth. We've got a solar system that rotates. They're, they're speaking with, he's writing with what he knows. God most likely just slowed down the movement of the earth and the rotation of the, of the solar system, and he just backed it up to make it a 48-hour day, however you want to believe that. Or he just stopped everything. It's no different than when Jesus proved the same way, that he, he was out, and this is nature, and that's where we get the word supernatural. When you're natural, then it, it's natural for gravity, for things to fall and people in water to sink. It's, it's just, that's what nature does. That's the order of things. But God is supernatural. He's, he's over it. And so Jesus is out on the water. As a matter of fact, of all the miracles Jesus did, this one seems to be the one where the disciples were the most shocked. Where they're with him all this time and, and know that he's the Messiah, at least strongly believe that he is. And, and then they're about to die in this tempest storm at sea, hurricane-like waves. And, and Jesus wakes up from sleep and goes, stop! And it stopped. And the disciples look at each other in amazement and say, who is this? I mean, who stops the storm? And Joshua had the audacity to believe that God could do it. Will you and I have the audacity to believe it? That he is capable of taking what is natural and what should be and doing whatever he wants with it. It's important to serve a God like that, a sovereign God, that God is greater. He's going to prove that next to show who's really in charge. He goes on in Joshua 10, and they got five kings that are coming against Israel and want to annihilate Israel, just like today, by the way. They, they want to destroy them all the way. So the five get together and say, now we can do it. But they don't know that Joshua's got a secret weapon. They've heard of the secret weapon, and they're afraid of the secret weapon, but they just feel like, you know, if we've got enough swords and enough men, we can take them anyway. 
And so five kings came together and, and uh, they were no match for God. Oh, they were a match for Israel and Joshua, but they were no match for God. But I want you to see the symbolism here. And this is really important. You're going to see a pattern. So it says this in Joshua 10, 24. They conquered the land. They captured the kings. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. Put your feet on their neck. Important symbolism. Putting your feet on the neck of your enemy shows that you are subjugating them to you absolutely. It's the very picture we get in Genesis 3.15 when God said that one day he will take the evil one and he will raise up a seed who will step on the neck and crush him under his feet. It's an important picture because we're going to see this again when we get to David and Goliath. This pattern continues through. Now, there's an inheritance. We all get an inheritance. That's great. They say, yay, great, I get an inheritance. God has an inheritance for every person. Every person that's his in this room and online, you have an inheritance from God. You don't have it yet. It's coming. You're getting a taste of it now. Some of the trust fund, you're getting some interest on it. You're getting some dividends from the trust fund. You just haven't realized the full trust yet. But he promises that. And so here they're going to get their inheritance. He takes the 12 tribes. He says, We're, we finally have conquered enough to give you your inheritance. And he divides up the land. This is your land. Now, some of this land still had enemy forces on it. So when you get the land, you're going to have to clear it. But don't worry, because if you do what God tells you to do, you will be victorious. He has given you the land. You just got to cash the check. He's written it. You just got to cash the check. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Just as they promised, we're going to rest on the side. You got some other enemies you're going to have to take care of, but right now this is your inheritance. The Christians will have an inheritance. I'm going to read it to you in case you don't know. It says that this, and Paul writes to the church to the Galatians, he says, if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Jesus, do you belong to Jesus? If you belong to him, then you are Abraham's seed. You're from the father of the faith. And you are heirs, you have an inheritance, heirs according to the promise. You have an heir. One day you will get it. Jesus gave a parable about a prodigal son and a father. And he gave an example of what the kingdom of God is like, what it's gonna be like for that son. And when the son finally got over his slop and came back and begged for mercy from his father, what did the father say to him? Everything that I have is yours. Everything. One day, everything that is God's will become yours. That is our hope, brethren. That we can hold on to that. That like this world is stinking as it is. It's foul as it is sometimes. It's frustrating and anxiety-ridden as it is that one day we have an inheritance that we can hold on to and look forward to. The Christian inheritances will be realized when we get to our promised land. 
Now he says, and I just want to make this clear, that you, if you're God's child, Peter wrote this under the inspiration of God. He, he called you a name. He, he told you something that you were. He gave you an identity. And one of the identities that he's given to every believer is he says that you are a holy priesthood. You are a pure priest. What is a priest? It's somebody that has direct communion with God. And soon as that veil torn from top to bottom that separated man from the holy place, God's presence, as soon as it tore when Jesus breathed his last breath, you that are his became a priest. You're part of the priesthood. Now, I, this is telling for me, wherever God writes about priests in the Bible, I look at it extra close because now that I'm a priest, I want to know what my responsibility is. The priest got a special inheritance. This was so significant to me. The priest got something different than everybody else got. They all got land and they got farming and they all got their businesses. They had a big life. Their families were taken care of, but the priests were treated differently. They were scattered throughout Israel. They didn't get their own nation. They didn't have their own setup of a, of, of a governing judge. They, they were close enough to every single Israeli, Israelite tribe that, that everybody could have access to the presence of God through a priest. They scattered them. They, they weren't a people of their own. And you would say, oh, that's unfair. That's unfair. And then God gave them two things. Here's the two things they got. The first thing they got is that God said, don't worry about it. You can eat from my table. Everything that is brought in to be sacrificed, all of it that's brought for the sacrifice, you get to eat of it. You eat from my table. The second thing they got, and this is key, they got the presence of God. They got to be in the presence of God. Now, from God's standpoint, the priests are the, they, they are the key ones. It's the Levite pride, the tr tribe of Levi. He said the greatest inheritance for a priest is not the land and it's not the greatness of what you have on this earth. The greatness of the inheritance of a priest that you get today is that you get to eat from God's table and that you get to enjoy the very presence of God. Run boldly to his throne of grace, he says. I think of that and I look and I think about my, my own life. And I think about all the things that I want on this earth and all the things I desire, the things like Achan, that I, that I see it, I covet it, and then I take it. I see it, I covet it, I take it. I see it, I covet it, I take it. And, and all of that, God comes in and reminds me that, Greg, you're, you're not that person. Your identity is a royal priest. And I have given you so much more. Value his presence. Value the fact that, as Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear. Don't worry about that. It, it is the Father's delight to give you. It is his delight to give you. I just hold on. He delights him to give to his children what they need, to eat from his table. And then God had raised up a man. There were two spies, if you remember, God's, Joshua sent out 12 spies to spy out the land. Uh, Ten of them came back and went, oh, oh, we can't take these guys. We, we need to go back to Egypt because they're too powerful. They're too big. They're, they're bigger. They're stronger. They're better equipped than we are. And they caused this great division. But there were two 
spies of the 12 who said, Joshua and Caleb who said, "Uh uh-uh, God can take these guys. They're the only ones with faith that said, God can take these guys. And so one of those guys, we know about Joshua, but what about Caleb? Caleb is now 85 years old. Now at 85, I want to tell you, if you ask me, what do I want for my inheritance? You know what I'm telling you on this earth? I want a garden. I like to live in one of those retirement communities. I'd like to have like a little bus that picks me up and takes me to all my appointments. Grocery store. I do. Yeah, I want that. I'd, li- I'd like that now, actually. I do. I would. I, I, want, I want a peaceful life. I had a lot of stress in my life. I, I, I just want to relax now, and I earned it. And so, therefore, just give it to me. You know what he asked for? This is crazy. This is a demonstration of what life should look like in a believer's heart. Joshua got to Caleb. What do you want? Caleb thought back to that land that he, they spied out, the land that, and the people that made the tent totally freak out in terror that struck terror in their hearts. He looked at that, and he remembered God's promise. He said, God promised to give us that land, and he told Joshua, listen to these words. Joshua 14, 12, now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day, that day when, when we spied out the land. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. At 85, I don't want a retirement home. I want the land because that's what you promised. And I know that my God can do it. I'm standing on that. I want to be like that. Like that, I remember when I thought he was crazy when Francis Chan, everybody is going to the suburbs and places where the gospel's a little more palatable, moving to the south, building mega churches. And he picks, he goes, hey, I'm leaving my mega church in Southern Cal and I'm going to go uh, do ministry in San Francisco Bay Area. You can't get a more hostile area, I don't think, to Christianity. I've been there many times and I can tell you that for a fact. And uh, he said, Yeah, we're going to do it. Set up 40 house churches, we're going to advance the gospel in the hardest place. Like, that's a gutsy move. There's a lot of gutsy moves that you make. Your, your, your gutsy moves that are based on faith and what God can do and what you know God can do, those are the things that make the biggest difference for the kingdom of God and for your heart. Like, like we just play it safe. I play it safe. I like to play it safe. Jo- Caleb didn't play it safe. Joshua didn't play it safe because God doesn't play it safe. He says, if you're taking me with you, I'm with you to the very end. You really believe that? You believe that I'm strong than all that I have had the enemy subjugated under my foot? You believe that? Then let's, take, let's ask for some bold stuff. Don't give up. Don't give up on your child that is alienated from you or been taken away or does not following the Lord and is actually totally at odds with your faith. Don't give up. God can do anything. He says, and Joshua repeats the conditions for a blessed and victorious life. God has conditions, by the way. In case you didn't know that, God has conditions. He said to Joshua, but be careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. And Jesus came along and changed that, by the way. He modified it. He says, I have written the law on your heart. I have given you the spirit. Obey the following of the spirit of God. He said, and what are those commandments he gave? To love the Lord your God, 
to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Many Christians, uh, we walk, and I've been here many times, we walk under this cloud of disaster because we're systemically rooted into living life contrary to God's conditions, and we wonder why. We wonder why. We say, oh, God, and I've seen this so many times in my own life and other people. Like, I don't know why, God, everything's going wrong. Well, you know, you should probably stop living with your boyfriend. You know, I'm just saying. I don't know why everything's going wrong. I lost this. I lost my life. Well, you should probably stop drinking, you know. Probably should. I don't know why everything. People just hate me. I'm always feeling judged. The people at work, well, you should probably stop judging everybody else. You're just getting back. God is showing you what you're doing to other people. You're laying out judgment for people unrighteously. Not righteously, unrighteously. I don't know why everything. My kids won't forgive me. My parents, maybe you should forgive people. God has given you mercy that you had had mercy on. Not that they deserve your forgiveness, but because he's had mercy on you, you have mercy on other people. That's what I'm saying. This is the cloud of systemically we live in. We just disconnect those. Don't disconnect them. Joshua gives a final farewell message. He's 110 years old at this moment. Now, if somebody's 110 giving me advice, I got to tell you, I'm listening. I am. I want to hear what you learned at 110. Now, some people at 110 is as foolish as they were at 10, but for the most part, there's a lot of wisdom. He says, one of you routes a thousand. In other words, one of you, are, you, you one person routes a thousand enemy because the Lord, the God, fights for you just as he promised. So... So be careful. So be careful to love the Lord your God. Be fully devoted to him. So he said, that's it. You want that prosperity of victory? Then do it. Don't align with the world around you. He goes on to say, if you do, you're going to fall in the snares and traps. Don't fall in the snares and traps. Now, Joshua, at the end of his life, he knew that some people were still holding on. His, they were Israelites, well-meaning, just like you and me. And he knew they were a lot of Achans out there still holding on. They, they had snuck in their idols from their forefathers. They, they, they believed God, but yeah, maybe, you know, things weren't so bad when I was worshiping this idol over here. So I'm just going to hold on to it just in case, kind of like a good luck charm. And, um, and he knew that that was throughout, that there was a divided heart. They were double-minded. What did Jesus say about those who were double-minded? unstable in all their ways. Don't expect that you'll receive anything good, he said. Don't expect to receive anything good. He said that there were many, so this is what he told them. These are famous words, but the context of it's key. He was talking to people whose heart was divided. They were in with God, but in over here, and they found this magical road that us Christians like to find that's not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. It's a magic road. It's called the middle road. God said there's only two roads. There's a narrow road, and few find it. That's the road you go on. That's the road that leads to life. Or there's a big, wide road that everyone's going on. You, you got to pick. He, he said, choose one. And so Joshua says to the people, but, it, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if, if he's really not all that you want him to be, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Choose one. Don't choose two. Choose one. You don't get the middle road. You get two roads. And then he says these famous words. But as for me, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will serve him. We will serve him. 
I'll close with Jesus' words. And you know what Jesus said? He said, rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm, lest I spew you out of my mouth. To others, he warned in Matthew 7 that, that be careful that you think that you know him and you don't because we'll get to that day and I'm going to look and say, I never knew you. He says these words in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money, God in mammon, God in things, God in things of this earth. You got a choice. That's what, that's what he was saying. That's what Joshua was saying. That's what God was saying to them. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and we will do it imperfectly. We're gonna make mistakes. Occasionally we're gonna forget his greatness and we're not gonna consult him about our stuff and we're gonna pay the consequences of it, right? You're, some of you already, you're living the consequences of going life your way. You know what that's like. You know what those scars feel like because you carry them with you, they don't go away. But in the end of it, we need to choose. And I'll say this to dads in here, fathers, husbands, you step up. Don't let the world tell you that your masculinity is toxic. You step up. God has given you a responsibility. You hold on to that and you take it seriously and be devoted to it. You stand up with your kids. You proclaim his word. That is your responsibility. Do not give that to mom to do alone. You do that. You pick that up. If you can hear that, hear it. I say that because there's a war on men. And frankly, I'm a bit upset about it because I know who's behind it. And I know, that, I know that God has made this design for us, but it's for me and my house. Say that to yourself, we will serve the Lord. Will you say it with me now? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Amen.